So as we get into the Word, I just wanted to lift up a prayer, please, if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for, you, for this church, Lord. I thank you for your Word, which has been preserved for us. I pray that you would bless your people through the reading of your Word, that it would be useful in the lives of your people, that the examples and the points of this sermon, I know no one, no one, no one remembers the entire sermon, but you share with each person, and you, should, you give them a word, and you, you, you cause them to park in one spot. And I pray that you would do that today in all of us and in my life as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how many of you know there, there is a lot of reference to sports in the Bible? Yeah? What's that? Oh, boy. In the big inning. That's a good mom joke, I guess. <laughs> the Apostle Paul and the writers, other writers of Scripture use a lot of imagery from sporting events because they, they are, this is the Olympic Games. The original Olympics, right, was, in, was uh, Greeks. And so a lot of, you'd be very surprised to see just how many passages uh, use this metaphor of running a race or Olympic-style events to get their point across. One that I'll hit on a couple times today, 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 8. It says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. This is, a, this is a sports metaphor. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So what this is saying is, yeah, physical training is good. It has value in this life, but, but training in godliness has value in this life and the life to come. So it's a, it's a great endeavor, a great thing to invest in. Galatians 5.7 Paul says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Any runners here get cut in on by other runners? That's what he's talking about. Who, who swept, swept in and took over your race? Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. James 1.12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. There's the earthly training and the heavenly training, right? Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Philippians 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. And then, of course, Philippians 3, 13 to 14, a verse that has comforted me so many times in my life. So many times. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, the victor's crown, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's very important to us as Christians, as we saw at the table of the Lord, that we, that we realize that salvation is a gift of grace. It's from God alone. It's a gift of grace. In fact, grace means gift. And our salvation is certainly a gift. Uh, we are born into sin, and then we participate in sin, 
And so we really, we really don't have a leg to stand on until God saves us and does that work of, of saving us. But there's also this idea of then taking that salvation and then training yourself to be godly. There's a second part that we interact with where we beat our body, if you will, and I'm not talking about self-whipping or anything like that. I'm talking about, you know, we, we eat the right uh, things so that we can run a long distance. We, we condition ourselves to run a long distance. You know, we, we, we actually do participate in working our salvation that's been given to us for free. So, um, you know, I, I, used, I used to be a runner, and I've actually been running a little bit more lately, which has been nice. Uh, so I, I get this language of running. You know, when I, when, I was a, when I was a runner, I loved it because I was not in competition with anybody else in my mind but myself. And that's how I think Paul is thinking about this race. You're, you're kind of competing with yourself uh, to, to, make, to become godly. But my greatest delight when I was running was to wake up early before my day started, before like work and family, to wake up early as the sun was coming up and just try to outdo my previous running record. That's what I wanted to do. How many people have run and enjoy that kind of thing? Competing with thyself. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really great feeling. And, and every day when I ran, I always felt like I'd accomplished something before I accomplished anything, which was such a great feeling. Um, it's kind of like, like my salvation. My salvation is accomplished for Christ, and then, you know, I, through Christ, and then I participated in it as well. So I would try to outdo my previous records, and, and, and uh, this is what Paul is describing here. You know, we run, we participate in our lives in such a way as to win the prize. We're not competing with other believers. We're, we're competing with ourselves. We are not um, pushing other Christians out, but as we train, we're making sure that we, we do not become disqualified for the prize by getting sidelined by, by suffering, by sin, or other troubles. You know, these are the things we have to look out for, not being sidelined. And as we run that race, as we compete in that game, we keep our eyes fixed on the horizon. We keep our eyes fixed on the horizon. Today we're going to be in Colossians 3, with all this in mind. The heading is, Living as Those Made Alive in Christ. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to be to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God for us today. A few years ago, me and my friend Jim went to, uh, to Comic-Con, Jim Whaley, and uh, Lynn, his mom, is here today. Uh, and Jim taught me something that I've thought about so many times since he taught this to me, and that is how to walk properly in the city. Um, I'm the, I was the kind of person that once, once I got into the city and was walking towards the Comic-Con with my friend Jim, I was finding myself like almost hitting people when I'm walking around. Just people are coming at you and it's so, so densely populated. And my friend Jim said, instead of looking at what's right in front of you, look to the horizon and sort of aim for a fixed object and walk towards it. And then and do that like, confidently and resolutely. And I started doing this and... All of a sudden, I wasn't constantly bumping into people or feeling like I was about to bump into people anymore. You know, the simple lesson that he gave me uh, also reminded me of my driving driver's ed instructor years and years ago in high school. And he said, keep your eyes on the horizon and drive towards it. This helps you to drive straight and, and centered into the road. Keep your eyes on the horizon. All of a sudden, you are, you're driving well. You're, not, you're, you're spaced properly with other vehicles. Um, this, is, this is kind of good wisdom. Set your eyes on the horizon. And this is something of like what Paul is saying in Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly th- things. If you have been raised with Christ, keep, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts by thinking Meditating and reasoning, that's what that word means, set, set your hearts on, by thinking, meditating and reasoning, looking into uh, the Lord and aiming for Him. Aim your, aim your mind to be understanding and wise in the Lord. Aim yourself not on earthly things, but on heavenly things, because these are the things that last. Set your eyes on the horizon. You know, Jesus lived, died, rose again, and has prepared a place for us, a heavenly reward for the faithful, and he is coming back. Jesus is pleased to guide his people into, in life by his Holy Spirit when we seek after him. And you will walk straight and safely through this corrupted generation and your own corrupted sin nature if you set your eyes on that horizon, the finished work of Jesus. The finished work of Jesus. Notice in Colossians 3.1, Since you have been raised, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is an amazing lesson from Scripture. Set your eyes on Christ. Verse 4, for you died and your sins are hidden with Christ in God. 
Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. This is an amazing thing. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we are going to appear with him in glory. That's what we set our eyes on as Christians. Set our eyes on the reality that we are going to be glorified in Christ someday. That we are raised with Christ already. That we are seated with God in the heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians 2.6. Already. We set our eyes on that, and then we move forward. You know that passage from, from Hebrews about throwing off the sin that so easily entangles and throwing off the things that hinder you in the race as we're running the race? I believe what this is talking about is this idea of, of your, where does your gaze fall? Where is your focus in life? Is it on what's right in front of you and your current circumstance? Or is it on heavenly things? There is value to focusing on your circumstance to some degree, but when we do not focus on the heavenly reality of what God's called us to, you know, we begin to bump into each other and bump into people on the road. You know, it's good advice for driver's ed. It's good advice for walking in the city. It's good advice for following God. Keep your mind and your eyes gazing at Jesus and his finished work. Like you are, if you believe in Jesus, you are saved. You are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ already. This is all taken care of by the grace and love of God. And now we're just walking towards it. A friend of mine, uh, past, previous pastor here used to say, it's as if Jesus has taken your final exam and gotten an A+, plus, and now you just need to learn the lessons. You just need to learn the stuff. So we set our eyes on that. We set our eyes on the horizon of God's finished work, and we walk towards it. And we, we, don't, feel, we don't feel like overwhelmed with shame when we sin or when we stumble, but we just redirect our gaze to the heavenly places and to the gospel, the truth that God loves us and died for us. And the promise is, in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Set your eyes on that. This is a, this is a promise for every believer, that we are going to be glorified with Christ in the end. Set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus. I remember when I first came to Christ, I was a late teenager, and uh, I felt very passionate about my faith. And I felt, felt profoundly disturbed by how poorly I was walking as a Christian. I would have a desire to follow God and obey God. And I just found myself day after day disappointing myself. And I felt disappointing God and making a mess of things. And I felt so torn up by this. And um, I, I remember just being a dramatic late teenager. I said to one of my friends, I just want to you know, buy a gravestone and put on it, you know, here's my birthday, here's my death date. This is where I died, and my life was hidden with Christ and God, and this is just finished. And of course, that's kind of like, well, that's a very morbid thing. My friend didn't like it. Um, she, she's like, should, should I call, should I call the, the police or something? There's something wrong with my friend. But really, there's just this desire in me to have, have it be finished. I'm so sick of screwing up and being a screw-up and living in darkness when I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it. And later I found this passage, you know, when Paul talks about this very phenomenon, the thing I want to do, I do not do. The thing I hate is what I do. You know, what a wretched person I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's, Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So making a gravestone for myself and this dramatic gesture isn't going to work. But keeping your eyes on Jesus and his finished work will. Um, thanks be to God, you know, I really feel that in general, 
I see the truth of who I am in Christ at this point in my life. And so even when I stumble, even when I sin and fall on my face, I never doubt my salvation. I never doubt that God loves me um, as, so much. I don't, I don't feel troubled by those condemnations anymore because the word of God has chipped away at those, those things I thought to myself. You know, the, the scripture, there is, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, hello, this is chipped away. And, I, and I've learned that, as I've said many times before, I need just as much of God's grace to get through my very best day as a Christian as I do my very worst day. It's all of grace, you know, from first to last. And I need, I need Jesus. But now, um, I've, set my, I've set my mind, my eyes upon the truth of my salvation, and I'm able to walk forward. So setting your eyes on the horizon is one thing. Setting your eyes on the truth of who you are in Christ is the second thing. Set your eyes on the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. Believe it. Because it says in verse 3, For you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ comes, who is your life, you will also appear with him in glory. When we, put, when we focus on the horizon of our identity in Christ and who we already are in Jesus and what will, what will happen to us in our fate and our salvation, we can then put to death the sins that so easily entangle us every day. Keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here comes the active part. You know, we receive the gift of Jesus. We focus on the horizon of God's finished work on the cross. Now here's the part where we need to do a little, where we need to do some work with God. In verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now some people might say, those, sound, those are like fun things. Why should we put those to death? Those are the kind of things we enjoy. But let me ask you this question. Would you want to be part of a society where everyone lived that way? Would you want to be part of a society where every time you walked out your door, people there were engaged in sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and they looked at you as a, a means to an end, perhaps, of what they want? No. We want people around us to be kind, gentle, loving, um, genuine, not using us improperly. If, as, it's never proper to use somebody, of course. But we, we, we know intrinsically that these things are, are bad. These things are, are not, not good. And one of the big things is, is that he talks about is sexual immorality. And this, this is very closely tied to idolatry because um, worshiping the gods, the small g gods of the time when this was written, required that people sleep with prostitutes. They were temple prostitutes, men and women, who people slept with in order to honor their false gods. And so, uh, and this was a time when, when you know, anything, anything kind of went with, with sexuality. <clears throat> so, even further uh, than, than our world today in some points. And Paul says, put to death sexual immorality, which is any sex outside of marriage, between one man and one woman who are not closely related. Yes, the Bible talks about not, not marrying somebody who's very closely related to you as well. 
Sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman who are not closely related. And it was tied to, very much tied to idolatry back then. Um, and it also involved, you know, eating the sacrifices offered to idols at the time. But Paul says, when we focus on our identity in Christ, we need to put to death the sexual immorality problem we have. He also says we are to put away impurity. This is lustful living. That means like living with, and this is not really just to sex, but to anything. Just anything gets in the place of God and it's overused. It's um, never satisfied. It's never content, never happy with what it has, but desires more, which is so closely tied to evil desires and greed, which is also mentioned in the, past, in the passage. A desire to have more, a covetousness, covetousness of, of whatever your neighbor has. And finally, all of this is, is linked to idolatry. Um, the worship of false gods, which was prolific in this time. We saw in the Old Testament, uh, when God was with Israel in the, in the desert, they were wandering, and God gave them what they needed. He provided water for them, and he provided something called manna for them, which tasted like coriander seed, it would appear every day for them to gather and eat. But God's people uh, lustfully craved meat. They weren't hungry. They had manna. They weren't thirsty. They had water. But they craved the, the one thing that they didn't have. And this lustful desire for the thing they didn't have caused them to complain. And there was a, there was a, the wrath of God came upon them for this. Today's passage says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is a direct correlation. And wrath is, is anger exhibited in punishment. So in Numbers 11, it says, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. They're complaining and saying, we wish we were in Egypt again, which is a slap in God's face. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up into two cubits deep all around the camp. That's a lot of quail. As far as a day's walk in any direction... A day's walk in every direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 12 homers. Then they spread them all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was called Kibroth, Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. This lustful desire for the one thing that they didn't have uh, was characteristic of the Israelites. And this, because of this, the wrath of God came upon them. And Paul says, in the same way as New Testament followers of Jesus, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, and idolatry. Because because of these, in verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. These things are still not pleasing to God. You know, it's um, this covetousness, this... Um, 
greed, still not pleasing to God. Verse 7, it says, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you also must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. This, uh, this word for anger is the same word that talks about making God angry through, through uh, begging for quail. Um, it's, it's basically a human putting themselves in God's place and saying, I have a right to be angry and lash out against other people around me. I, I have a right to, to punish people when I'm angry with my actions or with my silence or with my words. And I am, um, I'm always around to almost explode when people need me, which is where we get the word rage. That's the passion, angry, um, hot anger, boils up and just inflames us with a lack of self-control so that we lash out the others around us. So he says, get rid of all these things, anger, rage, malice. Malice is, is, a, is a, an attitude that is not ashamed to break any laws. Slander is just like it was back then, speaking against someone's good name and slandering their name behind their back. You must put away all these things, it says along with filthy language from your lips, just foul-speaking, low and obscene speech. Verse 9. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. This whole idea of taking off your old self and putting on your new self uh, this, this is literally, to put, on, to put on your new self is to sink into clothing. To put on comfortable clothing that you sink into. So it's like after you're done at work, changing your sweatpants and you're just at home. Or maybe it's the weekend, you're just walking around the house in your pajamas all day long. You sink into those things and it's hard to get them off. You don't, you don't really want to face the public, right? It says, take off the garment of lying to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. So lay aside fully the one garment and take on another. Put on the new self, renewed in the knowledge of the creator. This, is, this harkens back to if there is anyone who is... Um, every, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. I was kind of forgetting the verse there, but you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You are being renewed. You are, you've been given these new garments to sink into. You're being renewed to be changed into a new kind of life from the old and former things. And it says we are being renewed in the knowledge and the image of our Creator. And this is why Jesus is so important to study and to stick with in the scriptures because we are being transformed into the image of the son of god um even as we are fully assured that on the horizon we are fully saved with the right kind of clothing on though there's no condemnation for us who are in christ jesus that we are seated with christ in the heavenly realms will be glorified with christ when he comes 
even in this uh, state, we are being transformed during our lifetime into that thing which we will someday fully become. So we're not there yet. We're not, we haven't been made perfect. And we won't be made perfect until we face Jesus and see him face to face. But from, the, from this time until the time on the horizon when we meet with Jesus one way or another, we are being transformed as we put on this new self into the image and being renewed into the knowledge of the image of our creator, Jesus. So sink into that. Sink into that amazing reality. Verse 11. Here, that, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all and is in all. There's no, no distinctions anymore between people, which is why in the book of Acts, you know, it's, it's salvation started with the Jewish people and Jesus reached the Jewish people. And in the book of Acts, they were told, actually, Jesus' sacrifice is for everyone, whether a Jew or a Gentile. Um, there is neither, in fact, there's neither Gentile nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, which is the, the mark of Judaism. Barbarian, Scythian, which means Russian, by the way. Interesting, huh? Um, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. These are opposing groups that are far from one another. But there's no distinction in Christ. We're all made one in Christ. It's one of the most beautiful things about our faith. So putting on this, this comfortable garment of Christ like a blanket, like, like the sweatpants, like pajamas, um, being transformed into his image. In verse 12, we see what this looks like. In verse 12, we, we see the kind of people that we'd like to lock eyes with when we leave the house in the morning. Not, someone, not people that are lustful and you know, mean, bad towards us and, and, and trying to hurt us, but as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Yes, these are good things. These are of the Holy Spirit. These are the, this is the Spirit of Christ that makes these things happen. Clothe yourselves with compassion. That's, you know, a gut sense of just, just caring for other people's needs, even above yourself. Kindness, having integrity, and being kind to one another. Humility, Considering other people better than yourselves and serving them in love. Gentleness, you know, approachability, being mild and being approachable by other people. And patience, a steadfastness, a perseverance. These are the things we're supposed to put on, even as we take off the bad stuff. We put these things on. We try them out. We see Jesus live out these things in the New Testament, and then we say, I'm going to follow Christ and do this as well. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Freely you've, you've, been, you've been forgiven, freely you've received, freely give. We are to grant forgiveness, we are to pardon, we're to give graciously, give freely. We're supposed to restore um, relationships that are broken. And we are to take our grievances and we are to forgive each other our grievances. 
whatever grievances we have against a brother or sister in Christ, we must forgive. Because remember, Jesus loved us in the, in the depth of our sin and forgave us while we were still sinners. So he says, just, just do what I did. Love each other. Forgive one another. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in unity. Binds them together in unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. This, I believe, is getting away from the, the regular stuff where you, this is take off the old stuff, turn away from sin, take on the things of Christ, these garments of Christ, live in this kind of way. And when you're doing that, when you're at, you're at peace with God, you're at peace with one another, you're at peace with yourself. And then you can be guided by the Holy Spirit much more easily. See, the Holy Spirit's always trying to guide Christians. This, this verse says, the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. The peace, what that means is, ruling means umpiring. It means uh, guiding us. It means calling the shots. So in times when we don't know what to do, and we can't find what to do, as long as we're at peace with God, we can pray, and the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts and show us which direction to go most of the time. Um, and, be, and, and, and be thankful is, is, the, is the resounding um, conclusion of that sentence. I, I, uh, I was recently in California, in Northern California, on a camping trip with some friends. And on like day five, the guys wanted to do whitewater rafting. And um, I, I, I had rafted before in whitewater, but it was nothing like this. It was like class one rapids or something. I had done it in Bosnia when we were on a mission trip. And it was such a casual experience that you know, everyone in Bosnia smokes, including the pastors. They just had the more expensive cigarettes. Um, at least they did in 2005. But the pastor would just yell, smoke break, and we'd just stop paddling, and everyone would smoke a cigarette. So it was not a scary experience at all. Um, but when I got to these rapids and saw, saw what they looked like, you know, the boat was smaller. It was a small oval boat, and you had to sit on the sides of the thing. You're not even in it, and wedge your foot between the, cha the chair and the wall of it and just hope that you didn't get thrown into these, this cold water that's swirling beneath you. You can just suck Whatever, whatever falls into it down to the bottom. So this, this rafting was not like what was happening in Bosnia, needless to say. There was no smoke breaks for anybody. The, the person we, we paid to be our guide, he, he sat in the back of this raft, and he just called the shots. He said, this is the, here's the skills I'm teaching you. Row. That means row forward in unison. Back up. Row backward in unison. And the other one was stop. Do nothing. And so he just sat in the back of that raft, and, um, and I, was, I actually became a little terrified because I looked at this water, and I said, you know, I've done this in a canoe. You're, you're capsized if you hit water like this. But this was different, you know? After about five minutes of being told what to do by this guy, not believing it was going to work out, it worked out every time. Paddle. Stop. Back up. Sometimes we went over rapids. He, had, he, had, he was very familiar with this trek, the best way to hit them would be sideways, so he just had us turn sideways. The best way to hit this rapids would be to be backwards, so he'd make us turn backwards. It was scary, but every time we obeyed this guy and did what he said, you know, we were totally fine, even though it looked like we were going to capsize. And that just reminded me so much of this. Uh, well, actually, actually the, uh, the, the thing I started saying in my head was, 
you know, Jesus help me, Jesus help me, Jesus help me. And, um, and then I started saying this thing in my head. And I literally did this. Trust the boat. It's made for this. Trust the guide. He knows what he's doing. I just kept saying that to myself. And that gave me confidence to move forward. And that is exactly what it's like to have the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Um, you are, you've taken off the old self, you've taken off the sins, you've put on the new self in Christ. You're being guided by the Holy Spirit. There's someone in the back of the boat who's calling the shots and someone that we can reach out to. Someone who's saying, paddle, stop, back up, and, and guiding us around in our lives. And when we're, when we're at peace with God, we can truly enjoy that ride a lot more than when we are just constantly struggling in our faith. The peace of God can rule and call the shots in our lives. And finishing up, it says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Um, let this be what characterizes our fellowship. We teach one another, encourage one another with songs and with gratitude in our hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So as the worship team comes forward, I want to, I want to challenge you today. Set aside some time to be alone with God and ask the Lord, show me what areas of my life need to be adjusted by the Holy Spirit so they more accurately represent the attitude and person of Jesus Christ. And as you begin to search for that question in your heart, reread this passage, Colossians 3, 12 to 17, where Paul describes this Christ-like attitudes, what we need to take off and what we need to put on. And ask the Holy Spirit to make these qualities true in your life. Let the, let the peace of Christ call the shots in your heart as you walk and follow Jesus. You know, we were made to follow God without shame, without fear, and God knows what he's doing. So we need to trust him. Um, John 10, 27 to 28. My sheep know my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen.